Dan McLaughlin reports for the Irish Times from Central and Eastern Europe. Dan, you're in Kyiv, the Ukraine capital, and US President Joe Biden visited the city on Monday morning. Did you have any idea that something was going to happen? No, absolutely no idea. And I don't think anyone, well, very few people in Ukraine did. I'm staying very close to the train station here in, in central Kyiv. And I just overheard someone at breakfast saying that something weird's going on outside. The, the train station seems to be closed off, lots of roads closed off. And I went outside and looked around and there was a huge police presence around the station. There was footage online of a, of a big motorcade heading through the middle of Kyiv. And then about half an hour after that, the first pictures emerged online. Morning, Mr. Of Zelensky meeting Biden in the middle of the city at a memorial to the thousands of soldiers who've been killed during this, during this war from 2014 and from the, uh, the full-on invasion this time last year. But of course, the danger of the, the journey, the precariousness of it was highlighted by the fact that air raid sirens did sound. But understandably, we, we hear that from the American side, there was lots of concern about this. There were no strikes. It seems like the air raid siren was triggered by Russian fighter jets being in the air over Belarus. Putin thought Ukraine was weak and the West was divided. He thought he could outlast us. I don't think he's thinking that right now. Talking to Ukrainians, uh, talking to people in Kyiv, how, how has the visit been received? Yeah, they're very pleased to see him here. Some of them didn't believe it. Some of them were very impressed by his bravery coming and also his kind of stoicism. He's not a young man and, and the journey's not that easy. Some of them also as well were saying, OK, we're very glad to see these kind of signals given, signals of Western support. But what we need now are, you know, as many weapons as we get as quickly as possible. We need from trips like this to make sure that Ukraine can uh, not just hold the line, but, you know, in the weeks, months ahead, actually push Russia back and, and regain more of its territory in the east and the south. And that's how long we're going to be with you, Mr. President, for as long as it takes. We'll do it. But one year since the invasion and despite some major military successes by the Ukrainian army, Russia still controls significant parts of Ukraine. At the moment, Russia is continuing to make incremental gains while Ukraine is avoiding any major losses. As the war rolls into its second year, has it become deadlocked with neither side weak enough to lose nor strong enough to win? This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, Dan McLaughlin on why there's no end in sight for the war in Ukraine. Dan, can you sum up what's been happening in military terms since Christmas? There was something of a stalemate. I mean, just before Christmas, we had major news from Kherson, which is down in southeastern Ukraine. Ukrainian forces managed to push the Russians uh, out of the western half of the region, back over the Dnipro River, and Ukraine actually managed to retake the provincial capital, Kherson. After that, the battle really focused on the Donetsk region and a town called Bakhmut, a town that has some strategic value, being a kind of transport hub in the area, and it would be a staging post for Russia to push on to a couple of bigger Ukrainian-controlled cities in Donetsk region. But the fighting around there has been extremely heavy for many weeks now, and Russia has made only incremental gains at what we think are huge losses. I mean, losses are very, very heavy on both sides, but it seems the Russians are taking heavier losses there than Ukraine. And Dan, how is the Russian assault going for them? They're on the outskirts of Bakhmut. Um, various Russian sources have claimed that they're making inroads into the city. Ukraine insists that it still essentially has control of Bakhmut. 
But that's where the heaviest fighting is now, along with a town called Vugladar, which is also in Donetsk region, and then in Lugansk region, the neighboring region of Lugansk, um, and a town called uh, Kremina, which is actually Russian-controlled, but it's very close to the front line. And there's lots of heavy fighting around there now. So not a lot of movement, just incremental gains for the Russians. But Ukraine insists that even though fighting is very heavy and they are taking losses, they're managing just about to hold the front line across across the east there. And do you have a sense of what condition are the two armies in at the moment after a year of fighting? Well, they have taken huge losses. I mean, neither side will admit or publicize the losses that it's taken. But, you know, we've seen reports from the Americans, for example, saying that the Amer- they believe that both sides have more than 100,000 soldiers killed and wounded. So very, very heavy losses. We're also seeing difficulties with supply and ammunition. I mean, all these things that go along with, with the very heavy fighting that's taken place. And they have fought each other to something of a standstill in Donetsk now. Both sides are sort of waiting for something to change. You know, the Russians are waiting for the Ukrainian side to the Ukrainian front to collapse, which doesn't look like it's going to happen in a dramatic way anytime soon. And the Ukrainian side is waiting for more ammunition and weapons to arrive from Western allies. Only then will it be able to really strongly hold the line and potentially push the Russians back. But at the moment, we have this very, very grinding attritional war, a war of logistics to some extent. And when you talk to military analysts, they say that you know, Russia is this enormous country with, a, with a, a million strong army, which it's now increasing to something like a million and a half people. So Russia has, uh, analysts say, kind of time and weight of numbers on its side. In that sense, it's kind of a, a battle between the quantity that Russia has against the quality that Ukraine has. You know, the, the quality of Ukraine's arm, army has improved massively in, in recent years in terms of the training they've been getting from Western partners, the weapons they've been getting, and they're using those weapons and, and training very, very well at the moment. But they simply don't have the numbers in terms of, of manpower and in terms of weaponry and ammunition that the Russians have. So it's this kind of grinding battle, and we're, we're just waiting to see whether quality or quantity tells um, and when we will see that some kind of significant change on the, battles, on the battlefield. You mentioned Bakhmut. There's been a lot of reports now that a major player in that battle is a brutal Russian mercenary group called Wagner. This organisation is independent from the Russian military. Its fighters are not listed in the Russian military, but it's working alongside the traditional military in the war in Ukraine. What is its role and where is the value for Russia in organising itself in this way? Well, Wagner is, I mean, it's certainly a very kind of shadowy and sinister group, but it's also a very mixed group as well. Originally, the Wagner group was formed of ex-military men, people who had experience in places like Chechnya and other military conflicts that Russia's been involved in, either on its own territory, Chechnya, Dagestan, Ingushetia, but also in Syria, for example, where Russian troops have been involved for several years. And when those soldiers left the army, they, you know, often they wouldn't find work or, or work that was desirable for them back home in Russia. And the Wagner group propped up, popped up and said, come and work for us. Wagner was offering very good salaries by Russian standards. They had very close ties to the military or at least to military intelligence. So they were offering good training, good facilities, good salaries, good equipment. And they sent them into Ukraine initially after 2014 on that basis. As almost, you know, even though they're a mercenary group, they were to some degree if not an elite group, they were do performing functions like 
special forces units. Now, that's, tra- that's changed a lot in the last few months as Wagner has tried to massively increase its numbers. So the founder of the Wagner Group, a guy called Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's quite close to Putin himself, we think, has personally been going around prisons in Russia and offering pardons to prisoners. You know, we're talking about murderers, rapists, people who have been sentenced for the most serious crimes, telling them that if you survive six months on the battlefield of Ukraine, you'll get a pardon. And as far as we know, tens of thousands of people have taken him up on this offer and they joined the Wagner Group. Now, they were sent to the front, as you mentioned there, with very little training, and they've essentially been used as cannon fodder in places like Bakhmut. From what the Ukrainians tell us, they're basically being sent forward in wave after wave, human waves of fighters, really, um, trying to overwhelm Ukrainian positions. And so that the Ukrainians use up their ammunition, they become exhausted. And then when these waves sent by the Wagner group make a breakthrough, then more qualified Russian troops follow up and try to seize the positions. So that's the way the Wagner Group's being used at the moment. It's a very, very sinister operation um, with very, very little control from the Russian military. And we even see kind of rivalries developing as well between the Russian military and the Wagner Group, different sides trying to claim credit for different breakthroughs that the Russians have made. So um, it's definitely something we have to watch in in the weeks and months ahead, not only on the battlefield, but also in terms of a potential power struggle in, in the Russian armed forces. I'll continue my conversation with Dan McLaughlin after this short break. Welcome back. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, I'm talking to Dan McLaughlin about the anniversary of the war in Ukraine. Dan has spoken on this podcast from Ukraine several times in the past year. And he's also been writing about the war every week in the Irish Times and especially about how it's affecting the people of Ukraine. To access all of Dan's reports and to support the journalism of the Irish Times, you can subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. Back to the conversation. Dan, this month, uh, there's another anniversary of sorts because on February 28th last year, Ukraine applied for membership of the EU uh, under a new special procedure. Um, Immediately, you know, Ursula von der Leyen stated that she supports Ukraine's accession. Uh, She said that the process would take time. Now, where are we in that process? Well, Ukraine got a boost last June when it was given official candidate status from the European Union. Again, something of a symbolic boost because talk to any Western politicians or analysts, anyone who knows the way the European Union works, anyone who's seen how countries in the Balkans have been trying for years and years to get through the door of the European Union, they know that this will take years and years for Ukraine. But of course, Ukraine needs these kinds of boosts. It needs these kind of targets. It needs these kind of carrots, if you like, as something to pursue, not only in terms of its reforms, but also to for the government to hold something up to the public here and say, look, you know, we are on the right path. The European Union backs us. They're ready to accept us when we've done all the reforms that are necessary. And they are trying to push on with those reforms. I mean, they've picked them up again in the last couple of months, really, maybe four to six months. They've really tried to kind of reinvigorate the reforms, particularly anti-corruption reforms, which are crucial to Ukraine ever getting close to the European Union. But I think people realistically know that they're a long way from joining. They know that there's a huge amount of bureaucracy and a huge number of boxes to be ticked before Ukraine is ready to join. But it's just something else that makes Ukraine and Ukrainians 
Americans feel like we do have a goal. We are definitely moving towards the West. And it also comes on the back of the um, Stabilization and Association Agreement that, that Ukraine signed with Russia a number of years ago after the revolution on Maidan in 2014, which basically started to integrate the Ukrainian economy and legal system and so on with that of the European Union. So it's a step-by-step process. It's going to take a very long time. Um, but it's just, a, you know, another chink of light at the end of the tunnel, if, if you like, for this country and its people. So something like anti-corruption reforms, that must be very popular among Ukrainians, among every normal, everyday Ukrainians. Absolutely. And of course, you know, when we think back to the Maidan revolution, which actually, you know, culminated also uh, on on these dates in February, uh, nine years ago in 2014, a huge part of the motivation of people going out on Maidan to to protest against the Russian-backed government of the time was the immense corruption and cronyism that was blighting Ukraine at the time and had done for years. So it's a, it's a big motivation for people here. Even, even while, you know, fighting this war, defending the country, they say that we also have to continue reforms at home to make sure that Russia also can't exploit that. You know, the more corruption there is in the country, the easier it is, easier it is for Russia to find people who are willing to collaborate. That's how people see it. And for, for people to be bought off. In the early weeks, you came onto the podcast and you you were saying that there was a feeling among people you were, you were talking to there that Western policy towards Putin has failed and that the West sanctions, because if you remember, well, you will remember that the early weeks of the war, there was a whole lot of sanctions talk. Um, But the feeling that the West sanctions, uh, they weren't going to do enough. They haven't done enough to stop him. I mean, is that sentiment still the same, do you think? I mean, I think until uh, Russia is effectively stopped, Ukrainians will say the West isn't doing enough. And certainly they look at what the West did in response to Russia annexing Crimea in 2014 and then starting a war by creating an armed militia in eastern Ukraine in 2014. Ukraine said, look, if you'd done more then to the West, we wouldn't have had this full-scale invasion in 2022. They even look back a little bit further and say, if you'd done more when Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, we wouldn't have had to deal with this kind of Russian aggression at all. So certainly Ukraine thinks that the West has been slow, the West has been reluctant to take tough steps against Russia. And of course, each packet of sanctions, they're very happy to see. But, you know, they still, you know, they know that the the richest, most powerful Russians still haven't really been affected. They're still, you know, living with their wealth. They're still living perfectly good lives. They're under no threat of, you know, being arrested or necessarily even losing their um, economic interests in the West. They may have had one or two flats, a yacht here or there may be sanctioned. Uh, there may be travel bans on some people. But um, ultimately, there hasn't been the kind of action taken against the Russian economy which has forced Russia to, which would force Russia to change tack. In fact, we've just seen Russia putting more and more resources into building up its, its military again, producing more ammunition, producing more weapons. So as far as the Ukrainians see it, the, 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 the economic impact on Russia has not been sufficient yet. The Ukrainians are impatient and they say until, uh, Russia is forced to stop this war, until the, the, economy cannot take it anymore, not enough has been done to um, to punish Russia for this unprovoked aggression, which has claimed tens of thousands of lives in Ukraine and displaced millions of people. So you talk about the impact on the Russian economy. What has been the impact on Ukraine's economy? It must be under considerable strain. 
Yeah, it's a, there's a huge uh, impact on GDP. There's a huge impact on the unemployment rate. It's very hard to gauge it exactly, but there are figures that suggest that a quarter of all adults in Ukraine are out of work now. So there's immense strain on, on the Ukrainian economy and Ukrainian households. Again, Western countries have stepped in and uh, institutions like the IMF and World Bank have stepped in to prop up the Ukrainian economy to a great extent. But it's very, very tough for people. Lots of people have had to obviously tighten their belts in terms of what they spend. Pensions are still very low. You know, I was speaking to pensioners in Bucha the other day, and they were saying that they only have something like 60 euros, something like that for, for their monthly pension. Very, very tough. And of course, you know, inflation as is being felt every, almost everywhere in the world is also being felt here. So it, it's very, very hard for people. Lots of people have lost their jobs and they've turned to doing kind of volunteer work and things to keep themselves busy. So it's, it, it's a very, very tough picture. Um, and obviously that people are just waiting for some kind of stabilization in terms of the security situation here, in terms of the economic situation, to try and, them, try and get themselves and their household back on a better economic footing. But it's, it's very precarious for millions of Ukrainians at the moment. This year, Dan, uh, the 24th of February, it's going to be a date for the history books. But of course, the war isn't over. Do you get a sense, or what is the sense, that we could be back here next year marking the second anniversary? I think it's more likely than not that we will be back next year talking about this again. Um, I don't think anyone really in Ukraine thinks that this is going to end anytime soon. And you get the same feeling from the Russian side. You have to look at the way both sides are kind of setting themselves up for this. Ukrainians say there is absolutely no way they can surrender. To surrender would mean destruction of Ukraine. Ukrainians, most Ukrainians and certainly Ukraine's leaders say this is, this is genocide. If we give in to Russia, if we allow Russia to take over our country, we'll see on a massive scale the kind of things we saw in Bucha, the kind of massacres we saw in Bucha, the kind of massacres we saw in Izium in eastern Ukraine, the kind of destruction of cities like Mariupol, which was basically razed to the ground by the Russians before they took it. Ukrainians say we can't allow that. Even if they lose more territory, they will still fight tooth and nail for every bit of territory they have left, even if it ended up being a kind of guerrilla war fought from Western Ukraine, it, it would not stop. And then from the Russian side, you know, Putin has gone all in with this. This is the issue that Putin's, what, 23-year uh, rule now will be judged upon whenever it ends. And he cannot contemplate defeat. I mean, defeat would be an utter disaster for him and the legacy that he wants for himself. So Russia has to go to the end with this as well. So, you know, we can't see this ending, I don't think, without something absolutely monumental happening in one of the two countries. Either a complete collapse of Ukraine, which is almost impossible to see, particularly given the levels of Western support. So then you look at the Russian side and you see, you know, how can things change there? A change in the regime, you know, Putin's an old man now. Does Putin die? And then there's a kind of power struggle in Russia. Could there even be some kind of internal collapse in Russia and, and civil conflict in Russia that could result from that, from the potentially a conflict between the kind of groups that we talked about there? The Wagner group that's becoming very in influential. Prigozhin, who now has a kind of personal army of his own. Ramzan Kadyrov, the the warlord who runs Chechnya, who also has his own personal army. What would happen if Putin did face defeat and his regime ended up collapsing? So um, I think we're going to see much harder times, potentially much bloodier times before we see the end of this. And I think it's actually impossible at the moment to foresee 
how it ends, either from the Ukrainian side or from the Russian side. Dan, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, You're heading to Kharkiv. Stay safe while you're there. Thank you very much indeed. That's all for today. For more on the impact of the war in Ukraine, listen to our sister podcast, Inside Politics, where Hugh Lenahan will be talking to our foreign correspondents about the impact of the war on the wider world, from Brussels to Beijing. I'm Bernice Harrison. This podcast was produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back on Friday.